verses uh, 1 to 11 of Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. Not long ago we have read this. I just wanted to come back uh, to this part of the world, uh, the word, and then uh, talk about the the Savior Jesus Christ in his kingship. Philippians chapter 2 verses 1 to 11. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then they make my joy complete by being like-minded having some the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made a human in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. May the Lord help us to understand this and apply to our lives for his own glory. Amen. The title of uh, the sermon this morning is The Demand of Christmas. The Demand of Christmas. And it comes... I'll concentrate on the reading that we had from Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I received an email from our Moderator General, the Right Reverend Robert Benn. Robert wrote to all ministers in a way to encourage us in the ministry, and he wrote these, and I want to quote him in his email. Our passions for the communication of the, of the gospel with the wonderful extra possibilities that Christmas offers make, such, make it such that we certainly want to use the opportunities handed to us on a silver platter. But we are tired. We're looking forward just so much to that break. Amidst the tiredness, one minister said to me, I hardly know what to talk about at Christmas anymore. 
I pray that in the midst of your busyness, the Lord will take your, your prepared words and passions and use them this Christmas time to arrest some to the absolute truth and lead them up Calvary's hill to gaze at the one who tabernacled amongst us and gave his life, the just for the unjust ones, to bring them to God. I really appreciate emails like that. But one sentence in this uh, email caught my mind. That of a minister who said, I hardly know what to talk about at Christmas anymore. This is certainly the experience of many a minister. What more can one preach about this first, the first chapters in the Gospels? All of us know the Christmas story. We know about Joseph and Mary, the inn who had no room, the manger and the crib, the wise men from the east, and cruel Herod. That's why I chose another chapter from the Word of God for the sermon today. It certainly is still the Christmas story, but the words are different. There are a few things in this chapter we need to understand as people who know the Christmas story. Let's put it in other words. We know all the facts surrounding Christmas. The question is, how does it affect our lives? It is just more than a possibility that the church indeed has become useless and therefore lost its flavor like the salt our Savior referred to. Can I make a statement this morning to say that 99% of our population is currently in some sort of rush towards Christmas? All, about everyone, is taken along in the flow of the season. The question is, do they know what it's about? Of the 99%, maybe only 10% still know the real story of Christmas. And out of that 10% who know the story of Christmas, how many live out the demand of Christmas? A Christian life worthy of the love of God shown in Christmas. You see, that, that's the point in the end. There's no good for us to recite the story and know the whole nativity scene and even sing the carols uh, from the top of our head. We, we, we know these things. But how does it affect the way we live? If I told you this before, then just... Uh, let it pass by, but it was at, at, at a moment in my life that I'll never forget that I spoke to a lady who visited friends of ours uh, where we had carols that afternoon. And uh, she sang. 
She sang everything from the top of her head. And uh, afterwards, I could uh, introduce myself to her, and we talked about Christmas. And uh, then she said to me, Oh, no, 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 I, I, I don't believe this. And I said, How is that possible? She said, Oh, well, I grew up in the church. She says, Matter of fact, I still go for communion every Sunday. But I don't believe that Christ was born and, you know, all these things and that he went back to heaven and that he will come back again. I, I, I don't believe that. She said, I just love the sound of the carols. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. And we think about who Christ is. The Christ of Christmas. Then we find out this. Christ is God. I think for too many people, Christ is only the baby in the manger. You know, as long as we can sing about him who was born on Christmas Day and uh, somewhere or another he ended up in a crib and there were cattle lowing. And so by the way, if you look at that little carol that all of us know, uh, Away in a Manger... 90% of the words that we sing are not found in the Bible. I don't know if you've ever checked that. Where do we know in the Bible that cattles were lowing? We don't know that. It's, it's just things that we think might be there. But those are the things that we would like to think about Jesus. He's this innocent baby who was born. But when we get to the end of his life and the cross of Jesus Christ... And why he died, then we don't like the story anymore. And I listened to a sermon this week on the radio as we traveled, and, and someone said this, It is not the birth of Christ in Bethlehem that made the difference. It is what happened on Calvary that made the difference. And that's probably why I think the emphasis should be on the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and not on his birth. But he is God. Verse, states, verse 6 states that Christ is God. He is the second person in the Trinity. He is not only the little baby in the crib or the doll in the nativity scene. He is the Son of God. He is God himself. He existed from all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Through him and for him the universe was created. To him all authority in heaven and on earth is given. He knew no sin and was sinless and holy from all eternity. He was and is equal to God. The Athanasian Creed puts it like this. And if you want to check that up in your uh, hymn book on the last in the hard cover of the book, uh, you'll find the Athana uh, Athanasian Creed. And it says something like this. For the person of the Father is a distinct, distinct person. The person of the Son is another. And that of the Holy Spirit still another. But the divinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one. Their glory equal. Their majesty co-eternal. What, what, what quality the Father has the Son has, 
and the Holy Spirit has. The Father is uncreated. The Son is uncreated. The Holy Spirit is uncreated. The Father is immeasurable. The Son is immeasurable. The Holy Spirit is immeasurable. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. Thus the Father is God. The Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but there is one God. Thus the Father is the Lord. The Son is Lord. The Holy Spirit is Lord. That we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son, is both God and human equally. He is from God. He is God from the essence of the Father, begotten before time. He is human from the essence of His Mother, born in time. Completely God, completely human, with a rational soul and human flesh. Equal to the Father as regards to divinity, less than the Father as regards to his humanity. What a statement about our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. He is not just the baby in the manger. Far less the doll that we find in the nativity scene. Now, Christ is also man that is absolutely amazing this Jesus Christ who was and is God did not cling to what is rightfully his by divine decree and nature in one's mind in one mind's eye one sees the hand grasping clutching like we often see a little one do when they just don't want to let go what they reckon is theirs Instead, we see an open hand of our Lord who let go of all the splendor of heaven to come into this miserable and sinful world. He, the eternal God, with the Father, became man. This is what happened in Christmas. He became like one of us. And he lived on the face of the earth. He knew what it meant to be hungry, to get tired, to sleep, to see his family not believing in God. He knew these things. He knew sin, but he never sinned. He saw the suffering, the sick. He saw a best friend, friend, dead. That's our Lord Jesus. He walked on the face of the earth. He was a man like you and me. And therefore the Bible says we have a high priest. Not like the high priests of, of old but we have one who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted. He knew the devil. But he never sinned. 
he knew disappointments. He looked into the face of Peter, who would say, I never know him. Who's that man? And Jesus would look at him. And I would like to think that according to his human flesh and his human nature, he was so disappointed in someone who had walked with him for such a long time. And then there was another one who shared everything with him for a long time. And then he sold Jesus for a few pieces of silver. You see, our Lord Jesus, who was just like you and me, disappointed. And then to hear, to hear the voice of the crowd of people who, who knew him so well, who saw him do the miracles, who heard him preach the word of God, who actually took their clothes off and put it on the road where he could pass and put the palms, palm branches down and sing Hosanna. Praised is he who come in the name of the Lord. And then say, crucify him. He was a man. He worked in the carpenter shop with his father. He knew sawdust. And I think more than one day he probably had sawdust in his eyes. He knew. He knew what you and I go through each day. But keep in mind, he was God. But he was a servant. Verse 7 begins with but. In the Greek we see a construction of comparison. He who had everything now chose to be nothing. He emptied himself. Another way of putting it is to say that he deprived himself of what he had in order to become a servant. He did not become he did not come to be to be served, but to serve others. He had who had the likeness of the Father, he then took on the likeness of us mortals. More than that, he washed our feet. Isaiah chapter fifty three. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we consider him stricken by God, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. He is the servant. Can you believe that someone who is equal to God did not only become a man and then lived in, 
in, in the rich mansions of this world. He became a servant to the point that he came to serve. Now listen to this because that's important. To serve sinners. The very people who would cause his death. He loved so much. And therefore, he is Christ the Savior. As a human being, our Lord did what God intended for us. He humbled himself and became obedient to the will of God by dying for our sins. This expression, death on a cross, in verse verse 8 is significant. On that cross, he met the righteousness of God. There he took the sins of the world upon him. That's why he died. He took the wages of sin upon him, and the wages of sin are death. We cannot live out the full extent of the righteousness of God as demanded in the law. We are cursed for our sinful inability, but Christ became the cursed in our place. Further, he did what we couldn't do. He atoned for our sins, and his blood became our eternal sacrifice before the Father. It is through grace that we are saved by faith in Him on account of what He accomplished on that cross, the cross of shame. And because He did that, He is Lord. Verse 9 sings of the glory of Christ because of his sacrificial righteousness and obedience. He is Lord of Lords. There is none other which can be compared with him. His name is the name above all names. He is in heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. We read about it in Psalm 110 this morning. The Lord says of my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion and you will rule in the midst of your enemies. Before him, the Bible says, every knee shall bow in all the universe. There's not a king, there's not a ruler, there's no one who thinks of himself highly that can be too high for our Lord. Because one day, the Bible says, he will bow the knee before Jesus. Would he accept and know Lord Jesus as his Lord and King? That's not what the Bible says now. What the Bible says is that acknowledgement to say that there will be a day that even the wise and the most powerful and the rich and all these in the world will have to stand before Jesus Christ and say, maybe with gnarling of teeth, you are Lord. This is our Christ of Christmas. And oh my uh, dear brother and sister, he is the reason for our season. Christmas without a view on the Son of God as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is hollow and meaningless. But, and this is the great question, if we worship Him as Lord and King, how then does it affect our lives? 
There is a Christmas carol singing about the child born in Bethlehem far across the sea and it sings about his life that makes us holy. When Paul writes about the attitude of, the Christ, of, the, of Christ, he expresses something of what fills one's mind to the point that it gives effects to deeds. One holds in high regard and even becomes a way of life, what you believe in. And therefore, we ask ourselves, is our attitude that of Christ? I mean, there's no point that we say we are Christians. There's no point that we, that we celebrate Christmas of Christ born and we do not live as those who believe in Christ. That to me is, is the proof of the pudding. How do we live? And therefore the Bible says there should be something like like-mindedness. We should have the mind of Christ. Our attitude should be the attitude of Christ who considered himself nothing and then became a, a servant. He fully identified with us in our need and sinner and joined us together as brothers and sisters in him. The demand of Christmas is therefore in the first instance Christian like or Christ like mindedness. It is only possible if we love one another with the same love that Christ loved us. Like one body under the guidance of our Lord, we need to be one in spirit and purpose, which is the glory of the Father. Therefore, the second thing is, we need His humility. There is no room for selfish ambition. It's, it's an enemy of being humble. Christians are not primarily concerned about their own well-being and furtherance of their own interests. That was not the attitude of Christ. How hard it is to consider our, uh, others better than ourselves, Th that is sometime, that's sometimes very hard. And some of us can maybe, maybe have a, 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 a form of humility which is nothing but a form of boasting. You know, we can, we can say things like, well, um, you far better than me, and I, I won't do that. Which actually means, I hope you do that and fail. So that at least I can say, I haven't done it. Or sometimes our humility can hide nothing but laziness. Or we can say, well, I'm not going to do that, you're far better than me. And, and actually what I'm saying is, as long as someone does it, it's not me. That's not the mind of Christ. Humility is to serve actively and then say, let's do it together. Because keep in mind, that is the wonderful thing of the gospel. If we think of, our, of others better than ourselves, you know what? There are Christians who might think that of you. That's a good thing. We know that we cannot do all things equally well. And therefore the things that I cannot do well, you will. But point is, all of us need to do what we do well. And therefore we serve. Verse 4 talks about 
the interest of others. This verse does not tell us not to have an interest in our own lives, but it does tell us to also have an eye for what is important to others. It demands a life of service to, a, to the least of fellow believers. People in modern times just don't have the interest in others anymore. Isn't it, isn't it a sad thing that even as we do our travels through the bush, these days that I cannot do as I did 10 years ago, which would have been so much easier for us to do. Uh, I visit this property and then I ask the people now, uh, can you tell me the name of people on the next property so at least I know when I get there? As a matter of fact, people don't tell me their own names because of privacy. How, how can we serve one another if we are so reserved in our own little corner? Don't get sucked into the, into the times. Don't get sucked into this privacy law nonsense. We know that we cannot gossip, and we should not because that's sinful. You're not going to gossip about people if you can't say anything good about them. Don't say it. But we need to remember one another and also pray for another. Therefore, what is the, the demand of Christmas? The demand of Christmas is plainly this. There's no point in sending a Christmas card. There's no point in singing a carol. There's no point in saying Christ is born and then live a life that contradicts it. That's the point. The demand of Christmas is this. If we call ourselves Christians, we need to live like Christians. That will make the difference. It's not the present you leave at the door of someone else that will make the difference. What will make the difference is the way you live. May God give us the grace so that we as Christians will live differently. A Christ-like lifestyle. Being like-minded, filled with the same love that Christ had, one in spirit and purpose, serving one another as Christ served us and loved us by coming into this world out of his glorious heaven. Let us pray. Our Father, as Christians we are not exempt of selfishness, of our own ambition. And even in this time, Lord, we, <clears throat> as a church, as Church of the Lord Jesus Christ may just go with the flow of the season and we dare not to be different. Help us, Lord, to live like Christians, not to be taken along in the spirit of something that does not even reflect the Bible message of Christ. We pray this in his name.
Amen.